0: J.C. Ryle's Devotional Thoughts on the Gospel of Luke, Section 113, The Triumphal Entry, Luke Chapter 19, Verses 28 through 40. And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go you into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord has need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose you the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and cast their garments upon the colt, and they sent Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come near, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you, that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Let us mark for one thing in these verses, the perfect knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see him sending two of his disciples to the entrance of a village and telling them that they would find a cult tide which no one has ever ridden. We see him describing what they would see and hear with as much confidence as if the whole transaction had been previously arranged. In short, he speaks like one to whom nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes. He speaks like one whose eyes were in every place, like one who knew things unseen As well as things seen. An attentive reader will observe the same thing in other parts of the Gospel. We're told in one place that he knew the thoughts of his enemies. We're told in another chapter that he knew what was in man. We're told in another place that Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Luke chapter 6, verse 8, John chapter 2, verse 25. John chapter six verse sixty four Knowledge like this is a particular attribute of God. Passages like this are meant to remind us that the man Christ Jesus is not only man, he is also God blessed for ever. Romans chapter nine verse five. The thought of Christ's perfect knowledge should alarm sinners and awaken them to repentance. The great and righteous judge knows them and all their doings. The judge of all sees them continually and marks down all their ways. There is no darkness where the workers of iniquity can hide themselves. Job chapter 34, verse 22. If they go into the secret chamber, the eyes of Christ are there. If they privately scheme villainy and plot wickedness, Christ knows it. And observes it. If they speak secretly against the righteous, Christ hears. They may deceive men all their life long, but they cannot deceive Christ. A day is coming when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. The thought of Christ's perfect knowledge should comfort all true-hearted Christians, and quicken them to increased diligence in good works. The Master's eye is always upon them. He knows where they dwell, and what are their daily trials, and who are their companions. There is not a word in their mouths, or a thought in their hearts, but Jesus knows it altogether. Let them take courage when they are slandered, misunderstood, and misrepresented by the world. It matters nothing, so long as they can say, You, Lord, who know all things, you know that I love you. John 21, verse 17 Let them walk on steadily in the narrow way, and not turn aside to the right hand or the left. When sinners entice them and weak brethren say, spare yourself, let them reply, my master is looking at me. I desire to live and move as in the sight of Christ. Let us mark for another thing in this passage, the public visibility of our Lord's last entry into Jerusalem. We are told of his riding in on a donkey, like a king visiting his capital, or a conqueror returning in triumph to his native land. We read of a multitude of disciples surrounding him as he rode into the city, rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice. The whole history is strikingly unlike the general tenor of our Lord's life on other occasions we see him withdrawing from public observation, retiring into the wilderness, charging those whom he healed to tell no one what was done. On the present occasion all is changed. Reserve is completely thrown aside. He seems to court public notice. He appears desirous that all should see him and should mark, note, and observe what he did. The reasons of our Lord's conduct at this crisis of his ministry at first sight may appear hard to discover, but on calm reflection they are clear and plain. He knew that the time had come when he was to die for sinners on the cross. His work as the great prophet, so far as his earthly ministry was concerned, was almost finished and completed. His work as the sacrifice for sin and substitute for sinners remained to be accomplished. Before giving himself up as a sacrifice, he desired to draw the attention of the whole Jewish nation to himself. The Lamb of God was about to be slain. The great sin offering was about to be killed. It was fit that the eyes of all Israel should be fixed upon him. This great work of redemption was not to be done in a corner. Forever let us bless God that the death of our Lord Jesus Christ was so widely known and so public an event. Had he been suddenly stoned in some common tumult or privately beheaded like John the Baptist in prison— there never would have been lacking unbelievers who would have denied that the Son of God had died at all. The wisdom of God so ordered events that such a denial was rendered impossible. Whatever men may think of the doctrine of Christ's atoning death, they can never deny the fact that Christ died. Publicly he rode into Jerusalem a few days before his death. Publicly he was seen and heard in the city until the day that he was betrayed. Publicly he was brought before the high priests and Pilate and condemned. Publicly he was led forth to Calvary and nailed to the cross. The cornerstone and crowning event in our Lord's ministry was his death for sinners. Of all the events of his ministry, that death was the one most public and the one witnessed by the greatest number of Jews. And that death was the life of the world. John 6, verse 51 Let us leave the whole passage with the cheering reflection that the joy of Christ's disciples at his entry into Jerusalem when he came to be crucified will be as nothing compared to the joy of his people when he comes again to reign. The first joy was soon broken off and exchanged for sorrow and bitter tears. The second joy shall be a joy for evermore. That first joy was often interrupted by the bitter sneers of enemies who were plotting mischief. The second joy shall be liable to no such crude interruptions. Not a word shall be said against the king when he comes to Jerusalem the second time. Before him every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all.